Okay, uh, we'll be in 10 verse 29, say a few things about that in just a moment. Remember that from 1-1 of Numbers to the time they leave Mount Sinai in 10 verse 11, that a period of about 20 days is covered from Numbers 1 to Numbers 10. And included in that are a couple of flashbacks that go back to the first month and the first day. So, but all of this has just happened in quick succession. As we are about to enter this wilderness period, starting as they leave Mount Sinai at chapter 10, verse 11, uh, here to about the time we get to Numbers 19 or 20, this is going to be what we know of the 40 years in the wilderness. And there are only going to be a few shots of what happened in those 40 years in the wilderness. But I think they will reveal to us a great deal of things. They will reveal to us very much. But in Numbers chapter 10, verse 29, Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are setting out to a place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will do you good. For the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. But he said to him, I will not come, but rather will go to my own land and relatives. Then he said, Please do not leave us inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will be as eyes for us. So it will be, if you will go with us, it will come about that whatever good the Lord does for us, we will do for you. Okay. So looking at these passages of scripture, first of all, this Hobab is called the um and there there's difficulty determining exactly what his relationship is with uh, Ruel. It says the son of Ruel, the Midianite, uh, Moses' father in law, but but main thing, he's called the son of... He would be Hobab, the Midianite, since he's the, if he's the son of the Ruel. Um, Wouldn't he be Moses' brother-in-law? He would be... You know, it may be, you know, he's married. He's Moses' brother-in-law somehow. I'm wondering if the term brother is used here in the sense that he married one of the sisters because before it seemed like Zephorah was one of seven girls and boys. But we just don't know that much about him. We don't know much. But that's that's why I was... But yes, he would be kin to Moses. He would be tied to Moses as John is saying. It may be he's a brother-in-law in some respects. Now, how is he, how is Hobab referred to elsewhere in the book of Judges? What group of people is he associated with? Do you know? There are a couple of passages in Judges 1 and verse 16 and Judges 4 verse 11 that speak of him 
as a keen eye. So this is what I'm focusing on right now. Why would he, if he's a Midianite, be called a Kenite? It seems like the term Midianite is used very broadly and loosely for a confederation of peoples. Remember in Genesis chapter 37, uh, around verses 25 through 28, Joseph is sold by his brothers to the Midianites. The Midianites. What are they also called? In that passage, do you remember? They're also called Ishmaelites. Ishmaelites. In the same passage, they sell into the Ishmaelites, they sell into the Midianites. You see the same thing when you get to Judges 8, when Gideon had defeated the Midianites, and they're described as Ishmaelites about verses 22 through 26 of Judges 8. So my point, this may have been a kind of loose confederation of several people and the Kenites may have been one of that particular group. Uh, that may be this. So Moses is saying, we want you to go with us. And he says, we want you, in verse 31, uh, we will camp in the wilderness and you will be eyes for us. And one of the things that fascinates me about that, and I don't understand how this works. The Lord is obviously, unmistakably, guiding them to the wilderness, isn't he? When the cloud moves, they move. When the cloud stays, they stay. We saw that in Numbers 9. And yet, does the fact the Lord is guiding them eliminate the need for human wisdom and human insight to tell them the best places to camp and the best places to go? Apparently, it doesn't. Because he's begging that Hobab go with them in that particular respect. You see a same kind of thing in Luke 1 verses 1 through 4 where Luke who is inspired talks about carefully investigating the matters that he wrote about. How does it interwork? Where you study and you research and you examine and you compare accounts and yet the final product is not simply your writings but God's writings. How does all that work? I don't know. I don't know. But neither is eliminated by the process. Now, does Hobab eventually accept this invitation? In verse 30, he seems to say, no, I will not come. Moses makes a second appeal. Does Hobab go with them or not? We're not told here. We're not told here. It is generally believed that by these passages that that's evidence that yes, he eventually went along with Israel. That he uh, took Moses up on this offer. But one of the key things I want you to see is the word good. The word good. It is used twice in verse 29, and it is used in verse 32. And in each of these instances, the Bible says, come along with us and we will do you good. 
For the Lord has promised good. The Lord has promised good concerning us. And whatever good the Lord does for us, we will do for you. The reason I want to stress this right now is because there is a a prospect here in Moses, in the people, that good awaits us. And good is going to come to us. There is a word that's going to be used at least three times in chapter in chapter eleven. Uh, in chapter eleven, verse one, the New American Standard Bible says the people became like those who complain of adversity. They complain of adversity. Now that word that's translated adversity is a word that is the very opposite in Hebrew of the word good. For example, in Isaiah chapter 50, 40, Isaiah 45 verse 7, the Bible talks about both good and evil come from the hand of the Lord. And it uses these two words, uses these two Hebrew words. They're polar opposites. Moses is saying the Lord's going to do us good. And the people are complaining that the Lord has done us bad. In 10, in verse 1. But not only is it used there, but in verse, in chapter 11, verse 10, when the New American Standard says that Moses was displeased, he was displeased, it is the same word. It's the same word. And in verse 11, he says, Why have you been so hard on your servant? Moses is going to say that. And that is also this word that is sometimes translated evil. So there is a difference between what God has promised and what Moses is telling Hobab in 10 and the way the people are complaining and what all's going on in the present in chapter 11. Are we going to look in the midst of times that are evil or hard, are we going to look to what the Lord has promised and keep our eye on the on, on the good that He has said He would do for us. Any comments there? And we talked about the ark a little bit the other night. Katrina? Uh, question, and maybe this is for saying I have to answer right now, so I'll give you an out. Um, <laughs> but you were talking about like the difference between just following the cloud and having also human guidance like when you think about like the, all the times that God's people went to Egypt like all the times you know like sometimes they were told to go there sometimes they went there and were punished because they were there like I wonder sometimes if if we just aren't told like every time God said hey go to Egypt and then that's why they were okay because there are sometimes when they go and they're punished, but sometimes they go and they're okay. And like, I just wonder if that would be a, a good study to show us more like when it's okay to use human wisdom and when it's when it's just yeah following what God has said. Yes, I, well, don't know all the answers to that, Katrina. I'll give you a couple of passages. You know that, that that affirm what you're saying. You remember when Isaac there was a famine in the land in Genesis 26, 
And God specifically stated to Isaac in Genesis 26, He said, do not go to Egypt. Genesis 26, verse 2. Maybe Jacob remembered that when all his family is going down to Egypt in Genesis 46. And the Lord appears to him uh, in a vision of the night and says, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I'll make you a great nation there. It's Genesis 46, verse 3. So I'm really not answering your question, but I'm just giving you verses to... To, um, to pin that on and you all can think about that because there were instances where God said don't go and there are instances where God says go and um, I think the whole relationship between God's people in Egypt is fascinating it is a fascinating thing and we're going to see some of that in this chapter because in this chapter Egypt is going to be mentioned three times And so we're going to talk about that more. And Katrina asked a good question because she set me up with what we were going into for today. So I appreciate that. But in verses 1 through 3, the people became like those who complain of adversity. We've already talked about that word. Those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. And the name of that place was called Taborah. Because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The name of that place is called Tabernacle. What we'll often see uh, throughout this section is the people complaining, the people murmuring, God sending some form of judgment, Moses interceding, and then a place name is given to this. We see this kind of thing happen frequently through uh, this section. By the way, Tabera, both Tabera and Kibrath Hatava, which are mentioned late, which is mentioned right after this, are mentioned in Deuteronomy 9, verse 22. Deuteronomy 9, verse 22. In context, they are used as part of the argument that God is making, I didn't give you this land because you were so righteous, because you were a rebellious people. And the incidents that took place here in Numbers 11 are used as illustrations, as examples of how the people were disobedient and the people were rebellious. But the Bible says they complained, verse 1, Numbers 11, 1, in the hearing of the Lord. That's literally in the ears of the Lord. Is that meaning that they're challenging God and raising their fist in defiance of Him? I I don't know. But in the hearing of the Lord, in the ears of the Lord, they they are complaining of hardship, of adversity. And the Bible says the anger of the Lord was kindled. His anger was kindled. And we're going to see that phrase used again at the end of the chapter. In 11 verse 33. So God's anger is kindled. He sends fire and it consumes some of the outskirts of the camp. 
We're not told that it's consuming any body now. Like Nadab or Abihu were consumed in Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. We're not told that. We're just to consume some of the cow. Now, what did it consume? We don't know. It's indefinite in the text. Uh, but this is what I would stress. God is giving them a warning and a wake-up call. Listen, quit being unthankful. Now, please, don't take this too personally because I know none of us have never been ungrateful for anything. I also saw a little cartoon that I may send you out that someone said, why study numbers? It's just 36 chapters of people being unthankful and ungrateful to God. That doesn't, that's not relevant to us. (laughs) (laughs) Reading this should help us to be thankful and grateful. Not to fall into the sin that they fell into. And they, Moses cries to them. Moses, we will see throughout this section, is kind of intercessor par excellence. He, in a passage that you see this in outside of the Pentateuch, is Jeremiah talks about even, Jeremiah 15, 1, even if Moses and Samuel were there to intercede for the people, I would not hear. Moses is a great intercessor. And he intercedes for the people, the fire burns out, and the um, the Lord was merciful to his cry. God is not judging Israel at their first sin. God is gracious. God is long-suffering. As Acts 13 says, He put up with their ways in the wilderness. The long-suffering of God cannot be missed for reading carefully in the book of Numbers. Can't be missed. And He is gracious and long-suffering. And the people no more forget, no more is this, this crisis isn't over before they start another one in verse 4. They were slow to learn. Now again, this could not apply to us. Could it? Katrina? I was just wondering, can you remind us where in the timeline we are with this? Like how far how far removed are they from We would be in the second year after Mount Sinai. The second year. So Mount Sinai has has, has just taken place. We're in eleven verse four now, Sarah. Um but in eleven four the rabble who were among them, had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat in Egypt, and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. The people wept in 11.4. Now, there are going to be five references to the people weeping throughout this chapter. I know 11.10 is one of them. 11.10, 13, 18, and 20. So, 
five references to the people weeping throughout this chapter. Now, this weeping is not looked upon favorably. God in the book of Psalms in Psalm 56 is said to put our tears in a bottle. But this weeping is viewed as rebellion as we'll see later. And uh, the Bible tells us they wept and they said we remember what it was like in Egypt. Now this ties in with what Katrina said earlier about Egypt. Egypt is going to be mentioned in this chapter in 11.5, 11.18, and 11.20. And I want you to notice, every time Egypt is mentioned here, it is mentioned favorably. It was the house of bondage and slavery. And yet, they mention it favorably every single time. In verse 5, we remember the all the time, all you can eat free buffet that we had in Egypt. In verse, in verse 18, we were well off in Egypt. In verse 20, they ask, why did we ever leave Egypt? Now, this is something that's going to be typical of this section. These are other references from the book of Numbers. In Numbers 14, verses 2 through 4, the people will even suggest selecting a captain and going back down to Egypt. And in 20, verse 5, in 21, verse 5, the Bible again talks about all the good food and plenty that they had in Egypt and ask why they ever left Egypt. Now I want to give another reference here that does not specifically mention the name Egypt, but is talking about it. In the incident with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, in Numbers 16, verse 13, he is speaking of Egypt and he describes it as a land of flowing with milk and honey. That is a description of Canaan, where they are going, not a description of where they have been in the land of Egypt. But you see, because they lack faith in the future, they're looking back to the past and looking upon them through eyes, through glasses that... that that were never colored that way. They're looking upon this as a great positive experience. We had fish to eat. We had cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. Now, now Egypt was known, and Moses says this in Deuteronomy um, 11 verse 10, for their vegetable gardens. And maybe that is part of the reason for this statement here of all these various things they had in Numbers 11 verse 5. But it says, now there is nothing except this manna. We're tired of it. Now, and I mean this seriously, every time we would try to go over this in college, I would say, I would try to emphasize, do not look upon this as, you know, this is just so horrible, how foolish could they be? When you're being fed with better food in the cafeteria, and you can't make it a semester without complaining. Any Israelite, I'm making a statement in faith, but I believe it's true, any Israelite would have envied 
every one of us as far as what's in our refrigerator. If God rebukes them for going through this barren land and eating manna 40 years for being unthankful, how much more us? I'll tell you, preparing for this this week has helped remind me of the need to be grateful. One of the things we'll talk about in the sermon this morning is when you fast, don't look gloomy, but go about with your normal appearance. And I'll tell you too, one of the blessings of fasting is when you do that, you recognize your dependence upon God and you are thankful when that's over and you can eat for everything God has given. May we not lose that. May God help you and me not to lose that. Now verses 7 through 9 give us a description of manna. And when it gives us this description of manna I think the point of this description is to show the complaint is unfounded. The complaint, oh, all we're having is this manna. It's later called this miserable food in one of those passages I put on the board. But the manna is described one other place, at least one other place, in the Pentateuch, in Exodus 16.31. Exodus 16.31 and it mentions it was like coriander seed like Numbers 11 verse 7 says. And Exodus 16.31 talks about being like honey with wafers. And um, the Bible says that they used to cook it several ways. They used to beat it in the mortar. They would boil it in the pot. Uh, They would make cakes of it. I suppose if that's your main staple for 40 years, there were a lot of imaginative people knowing how to cook manna through that wilderness time. Uh, Josh, see if we have, see if we have 100,001 ways to keep manna by Zipporah. See if you can find that uh, via uh, internet. But, um, but, but the point is, this criticism is not valid. It's not valid. And they are blessed to have what they have and to eat what they eat. And by the way, this incident is also referred to in verse 4. It says that this rabble among them had greedy desires. You see, this, this, this is referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6 to warn us not to imitate them. 1 Corinthians 10 verse, uh, verses 6 and 11 says these things were written for us. They're written for us. They are a lesson to us. What's going on in Numbers 11 are two complaints. Two complaints. First is this. The people are complaining that they don't have meat to eat. They're complaining about their lack of meat and complaining about the uh, lack of balance in their diet, in effect. A second complaint is by Moses. And Moses is complaining, Lord, I've got to bear all this burden of the people by myself. Moses' complaint is more surprising than the people's. 
We come to expect this of the people. But Moses' complaint is more surprising. But Moses is shown to be very human through this book of Numbers. And in Numbers 10, Numbers 11, verse 10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. And by the way, I missed that reference. 11, 10, 11, 33. The anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. And Moses was displeased. Remember that word displeased. Same word translated adversity in verse 1. Same root word. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you been so hard on your servant? And why have I found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Now I want you to listen real closely for, for a repeated phrase here. Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to your fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you are going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight, do not let me see my wretchedness. Okay. What repeated, now there may be more than one, but what repeated phrase may I be emphasizing there? All this people, all this people. What is striking about this phrase? About Moses, and he uses it four times, four times throughout this section. Eleven, I believe in each of these verses consecutively, he refers to them as this people. Do you remember... In Exodus 32, when the people worshipped the golden calf, God referred to them in Exodus 32 as this people. Excuse me. He referred to them as your people, speaking of Moses, your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt. He referred to them that way. Exodus 32, verse 7 your people, God is saying this to Moses. And the point is generally made that this is Moses, God is disowning the people. Moses, your people, whom you brought up from Egypt. Moses' plea emphasizes both in Exodus 32 and Exodus 33 that no Lord, they are not my people, they are your people. He says, remember the promises to your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember this promise to your servants. And then when he gets to 33, 33 in verse um, 13, consider too that this nation is your people. 
So God is showing His displeasure with the people by speaking to the, as, of them as your people or this people. And Moses is now showing his distance from them. Do I understand Moses? Have I become frustrated at people I'm trying to help with less? Yes. Is it right? No. It's not right. And sometimes in our complaining like that, I've done it, perhaps you've done it, in our complaining we are putting ourselves in a position in a role we don't belong in. First of all, look at some of the things that Moses says here. He says uh, in verse 14, he says, I alone am not able to carry this people. I'm not able to carry them. Well, news for you, Moses, and for us, he's never been carrying them the whole way. This word that is used, that is translated carry, is often used to describe God carrying His people. In, it's used in Deuteronomy 1, in verse 31, that God carried. It, it's often translated carry, bear, um, lift up in our English translation. So it may be translated by different English words. But these passages use the same Hebrew word that God carried, God lifted Israel in the wilderness in Deuteronomy 1.31 as a man does his son. It's used in Psalm 28 verse 9. Uh, it's used in Isaiah 40 in verse 11. And the illustration is God is carrying the people in His arms like a shepherd carries his sheep. A shepherd carries his sheep. Uh, and you see a really interesting passage in Isaiah 46 verses 1 through 7 because God is making a contrast between Himself and the gods of the Babylonians. The gods of the Babylonians have to be carried by their worshipers. While on the other hand, the Lord carries His people. The old footprints poem that you're probably familiar with. That is true to some degree. You know what's not true about it? There's only one set of footprints the whole way. God's carried us all the way in good times and bad. Katrina? Um, I was just curious, why do you think that this is wrong when God doesn't critique Moses and say, Moses, get back in your place. Okay. I think uh, several reasons, but I think what it's showing about God is God's patience and God's long-suffering, not just with Israel, but with Moses as well. And when Moses is not allowed to enter the promised land, when we get to 20, I think what we see here is that that wasn't just for one mistake. Moses made a little mistake. He's out. He did this type of thing more than once and he puts himself 
in a position where he doesn't belong. Remember in Numbers 20, he says, must we now fetch for you water? Like he's a co-partner or he's an equal partner with God in this matter? No. And I think I think this is the same kind of thing he's doing in this case, Katrina. That he's that he's he's elevating himself to positions that he doesn't he speaks of himself as a nurse carrying these children in his bosom in verse in verse um in verse 12. And again, God is the one carrying His people as a, a, a father would a son. He's carrying His infant people along. But Moses speaks of himself this way. Moses speaks of himself. Where am I going to give all this people, uh, get meat for all this people? You can't do it anyway, Moses. Only God can provide that. I would just say, in light of all of Scripture, that, that, that in all of Numbers, I, I, I would say also this. Now, this is a little difficult, but verse verse ten says the anger of the Lord was kindled, and Moses was displeased. Moses is displeased. Now, does this mean Moses is displeased with the people, or Moses is displeased with God? I have tended to think in the past that it means he's displeased with the people. And some commentators will take that view. But the fact that same word is used in verse 11 when Moses says, why have you been so hard on your servant? It's the same Hebrew word. Makes me think that Moses is probably angry with God here instead of with, with the people. He's identifying more with this people who he kind of distanced himself from. He's identifying himself more with them than he is with God. We, we've also talked about how the personal pronoun I is used in Hebrew. When it's used, it's used for emphasis. Moses uses the personal pronoun in addition uh, to the first person verbs. He uses it three times in this section. And he uses the term alone in verse 14 and 17. Now, you had a question in essence. I was just going to say, it's interesting that we see this from Moses. When Moses, we, I feel like he, he talked about being the meekest man. Yes. And so even someone who is known to be a humble person still struggles with pride. And, and I think you're exactly right. And we'll see that even this chapter. It's next chapter they'll say be the most humble person. But, but even, even this chapter, we're going to see some positive qualities. Moses is one of the greatest men of the Bible. Would I have done that well leading Israel 40 years in the wilderness? I won't tell you, as my wife could probably tell you, after one year I think I would have, I would have handed in my resignation and I would have gone to lead the Midianites somewhere. So when I give a criticism, I'm not saying I would have done better because I know I wouldn't. And I think we have to, he is a great man. But the fact he fell short should make us again examine ourselves, see our failures, where we've done the same kind of thing. Ryan, so. seems like it's contagious. This yes, complaining, and yes. then it's so when I complain, it's, it's not only affecting me, but it can be devastating to everyone who is within earshot. Yeah, and leave them to do the same thing. In Exodus 15, in the chapter, it says the people complain because the waters were bitter. 
In Exodus 16, all the congregation was complaining. Seemed like everybody's complaining. Complaining spreads quicker than the virus. I won't tell you that. And it is more deadly. Discontent can sweep a people in a hurry. And we can begin to be unthankful for everything. I see Tyler and Sarah and... uh, I was just going to say, this whole story makes me realize how human beings in general don't like to be pushed out of their comfort zone. Like even though the Egypt yeah. or the Israelites in Egypt were in slavery, you get comfortable with that and they get comfortable with what they're eating. And like today, we just have different comforts. Yeah. And like we fight so hard to stay in our comfort zone and we need me specifically need to be more self aware. Sometimes you have to get pushed outside of your comfort zone and be okay with that for a little while. Sure. Yeah, what do you think when anybody knows that you move from Florida to Indiana is the first subject that comes up. <laughs> Cold, snow, various things. I was thinking about this this week. You know where I live? Most of the time in the day is 70 degrees all year round. <laughs> I mean, we got a lot to be thankful for. And it was about that temperature in Florida, too where I was living most of the time. About 70. So, we got a lot to be thankful for. Go ahead, Sarah. So, Moses' complaint about the burden and, and all of that, does God say, in his solution of, of saying, here, bring the 70 elders and spread the spirit on them and let them help you with this, does he kind of say, okay, I can understand why you have this perception of you being alone not to excuse him but just to kind of say alright you think this is a problem here let me provide you with enough food for these guys for 30 days mm-hmm. and longer yeah. but um, I think it shows us it's your, your wording um, with slightly different words the kind of things we're trying to say about his long suffering you know, he puts up with so much and even from the best of them, Moses. And he is. He is being long-suffering. He is being patient. And, and I like what she said, Sarah said about solutions. That the, the main problems we said are meat to eat. The people are complaining they want meat to eat. And Moses uh, does not want to bear the burden. These are the two main complaints in the chapter. God answers these complaints. Moses is not going to have to bear the burden alone, and that's going to be worked out in verses 16 and 17 and verses 24 through 30. And the people want meat to eat, and God is going to do that in verses 18 through 23 and 31 through 35. He is going to give Moses assistance in bearing the burden, and he's going to give the people meat. Now, the same thing that's a blessing in the meat is going to also be a judgment. But but he is being patient. Let's look at these cases. Let's look, let's center first on the does Moses help. In verse 16 and 17, 
The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take up the Spirit who is upon you, and will put them upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you shall not bear it alone. Moses complained, I'm bearing all this burden alone. God saying, okay, I'm going to do something, you don't bear it alone. So so God is, as Sarah said, being long-suffering in this answer. He's being long-suffering. Notice how verse 25 almost exactly repeats verse 17. To show us God did exactly what He said He was going to do. In verse 24, Moses told the people the words of the Lord and He gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and He took of the Spirit that was upon him and placed it upon the 70 elders and it came about when the Spirit rested upon them they prophesied, but he they did not do it again. Okay? Several things here. First of all, you have the number 70. We found that there were 70 elders before in Exodus 24, verses 1 through 11. Are these the same? Are these different? Um, seems to be a different group, but I'm not sure of that. Not sure of that. That remember Moses was also told by Jethro or Ruel, you need help in guiding these people. You appoint other judges over them in Exodus 18 in verses 13 through 23. But now these 70 elders and God will put his spirit upon them. And the spirit comes upon them and they, the text says, prophesy. Now that was not stated in verse 17 was going to happen, but in verse 25, they prophesied. I think the point of their prophesying in this passage is to give a demonstration that the Spirit was upon them. I think that was the point. Uh, Who is the one... Who is the person the Spirit came on and they asked, is he among the prophets? Saul, but but the Spirit, that comes on him when he is appointed king, when he is anointed king, and it may have been that served the same function there as this serves here. To show that God's Spirit was upon him. Spirit of the Lord came upon them and they prophesied. Now, there are two people, Eldad and Medad, who prophesy in the camp. Um... Moses was told, you gather these people at the tent. And so they come to the tent of meeting, they gather to Moses, but there are two men, Eldad and Medad, who stay in the camp and they prophesy. What is the reason for it? I don't know. Did they refuse to come or is this just two additional people that the Lord put His Spirit upon? In addition to these 70 who've gathered to Moses, it seems like the 70 did gather to Moses in verse 24. And are these just two additional people? Well, the Spirit comes on them and they prophesy. 
they prophesy. And someone come running to Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Like this is a bad thing. And he and Joshua says, Stop them. Moses says, Stop them. And Moses says, Do you envy them for my sake? Would that all God's people were prophets, and that he would put his spirit on every one. Moses, when he complained about not having help, he's not like I've, I've, I knew a situation once where a preacher complained he was the only man, but ten or twelve women, and he had to do everything. A preacher in his area felt sorry for him, sent a couple of men over there to services, and they said, "We're not coming back. We're not going back over there." He said, "Why?" He said, he still wouldn't let us do anything. <laughs> he wanted to complain, but he still wanted himself to be the focus. Moses is not like that. Moses is not like that. Moses said, I would that God's, all God's people were prophets. And they would just put his spirit on each. And so after the failures of Moses, I think Anesimus in this, after the failures of Moses, you see, he's still humble. He's still He's still thankful in this case for what God has done. And now, the Spirit in the Old Testament, what all can we know about the Spirit? Ah, it from Just from the Old Testament. Well, first of all, people didn't arrive at the idea of the Trinity from the Old Testament alone. Uh, but the word spirit is used here in verse 17, in verse 25, in verse 26, in verse 27. The spirit is sometimes associated with prophecy in the Old Testament. Uh, a couple of references uh, that I would give you. Uh, let me look back. The spirit is associated with prophecy in... Um, 1 Chronicles 12, 18. This is the days of David. 1 Chronicles 12, 18. 2 Chronicles 15, 1. The days of Asa. The Spirit comes on someone. And um, 2014. The days of Jehoshaphat. And 24:20 in the days of Joash. Now, the word spirit that's used in these passages is the same word in verse 31 translated wind. And that may show us again the interconnectedness of this two, these two complaints. These people are complaining about food. They're complaining about food. They're complaining about um, Moses complained about bearing all the burden. God sends His Spirit to help Moses and God sends the Spirit or wind to blow the quail into the camp. So, more good could be said. I know, and you probably have some good ideas. And I've got more than I've stated, but, but thank you for being a part of this. And, and to learn the lesson from this... We want to be thankful and appreciative for what God gave us. May God help us to do that. Thank you for being here.